The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinner. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Uh, good evening and welcome to this evening's lecture in the Trinity Long Room Hub's signature multi-annual series entitled Out of the Ashes, Collective Memory, Cultural Destruction and Recovery. This lecture is being recorded and live streamed on Facebook. Uh, you're very welcome. My name is Peter Crooks. I'm a senior lecturer in medieval history in uh, the Department of History in Trinity. And it has been my privilege for three years now to work with colleagues in the uh, Trinity Long Room Hub in developing this series out of the ashes, which is generously supported by Sean and Sarah Reynolds. Out of the Ashes has been running now for three academic years since 2018, and its immediate inspiration uh, and impetus came from our own national archival tragedy, the Four Courts Fire, whose centenary falls next year, 2022, on uh, June 30th. But our aim in developing this series was, as we move towards that uh, centennial moment, to set the Irish experience of cultural destruction in the broadest possible global and historical context. This evening marks, I think, the 11th and penultimate event in this story, which across the last three years has taken us right back in time to antiquity, to the Library of Alexandria, the very first lecture, and forward into the perilous future of ephemeral digital archives. We've benefited from lectures with a genuinely global coverage. We've had speakers coming from Australia, uh, India, who covered topics including Iraq, Sub-Saharan Africa, as well as much closer to home, uh, and Europe's dark and sometimes terribly recent experiences of cultural loss and cultural vandalism. Just as this series was commencing in the autumn of 2018, I can remember very clearly reading, as you will have done with horror, about the event we'll be hearing about this evening, the destruction in September 2018 of the National Museum in, in Rio. And it, we knew even in the that first uh, lecture of the series that this was a topic that we were going to have to address. I was enormously grateful to this evening's speaker, Professor Ana Lucia Arujo, for agreeing to join us in Dublin to discuss Brazil's experience and to set it in its deeper historical context, a story that really fits in all its complexity with the, uh, the story of collection and destruction and recovery that we've been following and tracking across the last three years. I was even more grateful that Professor Arujo agreed to contribute despite the turmoil of the last 12 months, we would love to have you with us in Dublin uh, to join the Long Room Hub in person. And that's something that we look forward to uh, arranging in the future. Uh, Professor Rujo is a very distinguished historian. I, she comes to us this evening from Howard University in Washington, DC, where she's a full professor of history. And she really embodies interdisciplinarity in having doctoral degrees, both in history and social historical anthropology, as well as the history of art. She's very widely published on the history of the transatlantic slave trade, a topic of uh, enormous interest, particularly in Trinity at the moment. Trinity, like many institutions, is exploring its own uh, history as it relates to slavery. Her publications most recently include Slavery in the Age of Memory, Engaging the Past, published by Bloomsbury, 
2020 and in 2015, Brazil through French eyes and 19th century artists in the tropics. Professor Rujo is a member of the International Scientific Committee of the UNESCO Slave Root Project and also serves on the editorial board of the American Historical Review. So we are extremely fortunate to have you joining us uh, this evening for uh, this lecture. After the main lecture, uh, I'll be asking uh, a friend of this series to deliver a brief response. You may remember some of you who've been following the series, Lar Joy, uh, who spoke uh, in uh, January 2020 in what seems like a very different uh, world when we were able to assemble in Trinity in person and had a queue out the door and 400 people in the same room. I think that was the last time I uh, saw anything like that. But we're very, very glad to have Laura back with us this evening um, uh, to, to respond to the main lecture. Laura is the Port Heritage Director in Dublin Port, but he is also the former chair of the Irish Blue Shield and a member of the board of the Irish Museum Association. You will have your chance to have a say. Also, we're using the uh, Q&A um, uh, panel function within the Zoom webinar, so you can log questions there, and I'll make sure to bring them to the attention to our speaker at the end. You can also have your say on Twitter. The uh, Twitter hashtag is hashtag hub matters, or use the Trinity Longroom Hubs uh, handle at TLR hub. And we'll try and bring as many of your questions uh, to uh, our speaker uh, at the end of this session. But first, let's go to our lecture for this evening, Professor Rujo, to discuss the death of the National Museum of Brazil, slavery heritage on the edge. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you for the invitation. And uh, I am very happy to be here today. I will start sharing my screen. Okay, and here we go. Perhaps uh, you remember uh, that day on the evening of Sunday, September the 2nd, 2018, a Facebook friend of mine uh, posted an alarming, uh, alarming news uh, from the window of her apartment in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. She could see the National Museum uh, Museu Nacional on fire. A few hours later, uh, the reports left uh, no doubt uh, the museum had been destroyed. As I watched the news about the fire, all I could think about was uh, uh, the priceless uh, articles, uh, Africana articles, artifacts housed at the museum, which I had the opportunity of uh, studying uh, to study then uh, about 12 years ago. The National Museum held 20 million items, a number several times larger than those held in European museums, such as Francis uh, Cabranly or the British Museum. As I pointed out uh, on, uh, in a tweet uh, that, that same night, that same day. Then uh, the history of uh, the National Museum was indeed uh, intertwined with Brazil's history of the slavery and the Atlantic slave trade. The collection indeed reflected the role of Africa in shaping the country's history. 
Brazil imported indeed the largest number of enslaved Africans during the era of the Atlantic slave trade, nearly 5 million men, women, and children, and did not abolish slavery until 1888, making it the last country to abolish slavery in the Americas. And Brazil also has the largest population of African descent outside Nigeria. We know that the formation of modern museums is also connected to the rise of the Atlantic slave trade. Of course, collecting objects intended for public or private display is a long-standing tradition developed around the world since antiquity, uh, before uh, the rise of what uh, has been conventionally called colonialism. Royal palaces, for example, and temples in Africa, Asia, Europe, and the Americas comprise the spaces designed to accumulate and conserve treasures, uh, sacred artifacts, and also exotic objects. Uh, sometimes these spaces were indeed open to public visitation, such as the royal palaces of Abomey in the former kingdom of Dahomey in present-day Republic of Benin that you see on this picture. But despite these early devices, the birth of the modern Western Museum coincided with West uh, European Oceanic expansion in, in the, the, um, the 15th century indeed. Uh, enlightenment and the development of scientific knowledge uh, propelled travels across the Atlantic, the Pacific, and the Indian Oceans, leading then uh, to European exchanges with other human groups and the conquest of Asian, African, and American territories. Then the development of the Atlantic slave trade, slavery, and the colonization of the Americas in the 15th century are also linked to the emergence of uh, modernity and the birth of uh, modern Western museums. For example, the British Museum opened in 1753 at the height of the Atlantic slave trade, and it drew from collections, from the collections in part formed by Hans Sloan, a physician, naturalist, and collector. Uh, during his period of activity in Jamaica, and this is when he started forming his uh, collection, uh, Jamaica that was the largest colony in the West Indies and whose sugar production um, relied on the work of a huge population of enslaved Africans and their descendants. Likewise, uh, the creation of a museum of the Republic in the Louvre Palace uh, in Paris in 1793 derived from the French conquest of Egypt, uh, drawing then from the heritage looted from other civilizations. These early institutions uh, were designed indeed to tell the official narratives glorifying great men, including kings, popes and elite individuals. Now, the museums that emerged in the late 19th century, such as the Museum of Royal Central Africa, Intervuren, uh, now the, the Africa Museum, 
uh, in Belgium uh, also drew from the plundering of West Central African populations, uh, a trend that persisted with uh, the rise of European colonialism in Africa. Museums in Britain and France, like the British Museum, uh, the Museum of Trocadero, uh, that later became the uh, Musée de l'Homme uh, in Paris, uh, the Cabranly Museum uh, as well, and other museums in the United States, such as the Brooklyn Museum and the Metropolitan Museum, all of them included and still include African artifacts and artworks looted during European wars of conquest of, uh, in the African continent. Now, between, of course, the 18th and the 21st centuries, what is conventionally called a museum has changed. Uh, ultimately, uh, museums can encompass several definitions, but for the purpose of this lecture, uh, museums are entities managed sometimes by community groups, private organizations, and also the state that promote then the collection, conservation, research, and interpretation of particular dimensions of the history, art, and culture of the societies where they are implanted. In this regard, to different extents, museums of history, art, and culture also act as cultural and educational hubs uh, conceived as instruments that can either prevent or promote social change. Then, like other Western museums, uh, the National Museum's uh, very long history was intertwined with the rise of the Brazilian nation. The museum was uh, housed indeed in the São Cristóvão Palace. And uh, this is an important site in the history of Rio de Janeiro, which has been the capital of Brazil since the, the middle of the 18th century. And was also Rio de Janeiro, the largest uh, slave port in the Americas. The palace was located at a place called Quinta da Boa Vista on land first occupied by sugar plantations on uh, by the Society of Jesus. And following then the expulsion of the, the Jesuits from Brazil in 1759, the property was divided uh, and uh, distributed to private owners, including a man uh, called Elias Antonio Lopes, who was a wealthy Portuguese slave merchant and politician who by the, the early 19th century on four slave ships. Then in 1803, Lopes built a villa on his farm. And in 1808, in exchange for royal favors, he ceded uh, the farmstead to the Portuguese royal family who had uh, recently arrived in Rio de Janeiro after fleeing the invasion of Napoleon Bonaparte. Now, Lopes Villa was renovated and transformed into the, the San Cristóvão Palace, which served then as one of the, uh, the, the residences for the royal family during their time in the country. Then when Brazil, 
became independent from Portugal, and this was in 1822, the palace continued to be used as a residence by the Brazilian imperial family. Uh, then the museum itself created was created then in 1818 as Royal Museum and opened to the public in 1821. Uh, the National Museum was then modeled, of course, after European natural history museums and housed artworks and ancient artifacts uh, donated by the Portuguese royal family. It also had a mineralogy uh, collection and also ethnographic items from different parts of Brazil. Then when Brazil became independent in 1822, the institution was renamed Imperial Museum uh, and it became National Museum, Museu Nacional in 1830. In 1892, three years after uh, the fall of the Brazilian monarchy, uh, it was when the museum was uh, moved to the San Cristóvão Palace, the building that burned down in 2018. Now, the National Museum relied on an European colonialist view of the world populations. It combined natural history and scientific racism and uh, its holdings uh, embodied in this uh, spirit of 19th century cabinets of curiosity. It, has, it had this rich uh, ethnographic collection that was initially uh, gathered uh, through donations, uh, both uh, from European travelers who spent time in Brazil and also from the Brazilian imperial family. Now, these relationships with uh, non-Western parts of the globe highlight uh, somewhat the delusions uh, of greatness of the Brazilian slavocratic uh, empire. From its inception, indeed, the National Museum held a, a, a rich Egyptian collection that uh, at the time of the, the fire was the, the largest in Latin America and probably uh, the oldest uh, in the Americas as records about these items do not indicate how they were collected, we can also, uh, we, we cannot exclude the possibility that uh, several of them were uh, looted. Now, uh, the museum also had a, a unique ethnographic collection comprising approximately 40,000 items uh, connected to Brazil's indigenous populations. Uh, the 19th century French painter uh, Jean-Baptiste Debray uh, largely used uh, the, the, these collections uh, to produce the drawings that in inspired uh, the lithographs that um, later illustrated uh, his uh, travel account, Voyage Pittoresque et Historique au Brésil. Now, this uh, is an account indeed of his 16 year residence um, uh, in Brazil as part of the French artistic mission. And it's a travelogue that greatly shaped the representations of slavery in museums, but it has an entire volume uh, about the indigenous populations. Now, uh, 
as with uh, many ethnographic collections of other museums, um, the acquisition of these artifacts was controversial. Many of the items were obtained then during scientific and ethnographic expeditions in contexts that uh, did not allow uh, native Brazilian uh, communities uh, to give their consent on whether or not they wanted to, to, to have these objects collected. In the first decades then of the 20th century, uh, the museum was transformed into a research institution. Uh, it also developed uh, important collections uh, in uh, geology, paleontology, botany, uh, zoology, and uh, biological um, anthropology. Then in uh, 1946, indeed, the National Museum was incorporated into the University of Brazil that later was renamed uh, the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro in 1965, then Universidade Federal do Rio de Janeiro. And this, um, the museum then became um, uh, the, the home of the university's first graduate program uh, in anthropology, uh, which trained uh, then uh, domestic and also international scholars. Now, to me, as a scholar, as a historian, the most precious objects that were lost when the museum burned down were the 700 items of its Africana collection. It was the oldest and among the largest Brazilian collections of this kind, of its kind. Then several of these objects entered the collections as gifts uh, from an African ruler, uh, West African ruler, uh, but the collection also incorporated items from different parts of the African continent, including then regions that did not maintain any kind of trading or diplomatic relations with Brazil at a time, but that were purchased by private collectors in Europe in the late 19th century and early 20th century. Now, by 2004, what I was doing as a scholar uh, researcher, I was uh, looking at the relationship between Brazil and the kingdom of Dahomey during the period of the Atlantic slave trade. And while I was doing research on this, um, how slavery was memorialized both in Brazil and in former Dahomey, that is present day Republic of Benin, I became fascinated with the history of King Adodonza, who uh, ruled Dahomey between 1797 and 1818. Um, during this era of the Atlantic slave trade, um, the Dahomean king Adadonza clashed with uh, the Brazilian-born slave merchant Francisco Félix de Souza, a story that was richly depicted uh, of course, it's fiction, in Werner uh, Herzog uh, film, uh, Cobra Verde. And you can see here a scene of the film in which Adadonza is depicted. Now, uh, Adadonza clashed with the Brazilian merchant uh, Francisco Félix de Souza, and Souza later supported a coup d'etat that removed Adadonza from power and made indeed his half-brother, Gesu, the new kingdom, uh, the new king of Dahomey. 
Now, popular memory has represented Adadonzam as the cruelest uh, king uh, of Dahomey, and indeed his name and uh, his symbols, his emblems, have uh, been erased from the king's official history. If you see these flags that represent, memorialize each one of the kings, the name of Adadonzam is not there. Now, in 2009, I traveled to Brazil to conduct research uh, in museum, uh, museums and archives then in Salvador, in Bahia, in Rio de Janeiro. And my goal was to explore uh, letters, a, co a correspondence between the Omean monarchs and Portuguese rules, uh, rulers uh, as part of uh, existing diplomatic missions uh, that were sent to uh, Dahomey. Portugal and Brazil, and these missions were intended to negotiate the terms of the Atlantic slave trade. In Rio de Janeiro, I examined uh, a set of letters sent by Adelonzan to Portuguese officials. Uh, these letters were housed in the National Library of Rio de Janeiro. They were also in the public archives of the state uh, of Bahia. And also uh, some of these letters were in the Brazilian Historical and, uh, and Geographical Institute in Rio de Janeiro. And I learned about these letters of the Institute by uh, true historian John Thornton. And this was in 2007 while uh, I was in a conference. And then when I went in 2009 to Rio de Janeiro, I went to, to see these letters uh, transcribed and um, uh, then um, transcribe the letters and uh, see what they said about these relations. Also, French photographer and ethnographer Pierre Verger was the first scholar indeed to explore this correspondence, and parts of this correspondence were uh, published in his famous book, uh, Flux et Reflux uh, de la Traite des Negres au Golfe du Benin. Uh, then uh, Verger was also indeed the first scholar to identify a number of gifts that King Adadonza um, uh, then offered to Prince Regent uh, Don Juan Carlos de Bragança, which remained in the, the National Museum in Rio de Janeiro. But the letters that were there at the Brazilian Historical and Geographical Institute were unique because uh, they included uh, a set of letters uh, that were sent with the embassy, the, the mission sent by the home to Brazil in 1810. And in these letters, Adelonzan described several of the gifts he was offering to Don Juan. And two of these gifts were included in the collection uh, of the National Museum. There were other gifts that were there, but I was interested in two of them. Uh, the work then with this uh, correspondence allowed me to explore uh, what was there in the National Museum and displayed then in the second floor at the time, uh, along with several other Africana artifacts, uh, these Dahomian items include a carved wooden throne that you see here and also a huge pipe holder that you see here. 
then my findings connecting these objects with uh, the co correspondence were published then in 2012 in a letter that I, in um, an article that I published in the journal uh, Slavery and Abolition. But later on, uh, anthropologist um, Luis Nicolau Perez, uh, he published the entire correspondence in Portuguese, the correspondence that was spread in different um, uh, archives. And uh, Rio de Janeiro's historian, uh, Marisa uh, de Carvalho Soares also started uh, working on the Africana collection in digging more information about these gifts. Now, despite uh, the importance of these gifts uh, and the importance of these collections, um, the entire Africana collection of the National Museum remained totally neglected. Most of the gifts given by Adanozan, along with several other African artifacts, were kept in storage facilities hidden from the visitors. The objects were displayed, as you can see uh, on the picture, in these old-fashioned glass um, displays without any uh, detailed descriptions to help visitors to understand their history. And the outdated displays mirrored and did uh, the lack of financial resources available to promote research about the Africana collection and also for redesigning the exhibition. Of course, uh, these problems were not specific uh, to the National Museum. Uh, they reflect the Brazil's national context, but also uh, the international context um, in which slavery remained absent from museum uh, institutions. Then in other words, what I'm trying to do here is, um, is, 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 to, is to say that it, it, all this is not only about the destruction of the building and its precious collections of African objects that documented the exchanges held then during the period of the Atlantic slave trade. Um, I want to take here the Burned Museum as a metaphor that represents how the history of uh, the African continent and also the history of the Atlantic slave trade remained absent from museum spaces, especially in Brazil. Now, over uh, the last three decades, uh, we know that Black social actors committed curators, public historians, and academics have pushed uh, Western museums to examine slavery and uh, the Atlantic slave trade in the, the, their exhibition spaces. You still we also know that most museums hardly are hardly able to convey the complexities of slavery and the Atlantic slave trade. And these complexities were addressed in the Burn collection of the National Museum that indeed emphasized African agency and also showed how the Homian uh, rulers engaged with uh, the Portuguese monarchy in their attempts to negotiate better terms for the Atlantic slave trade. This was an exception uh, because in most institutions, sometimes because of the limitations of the existing collections, uh, attempts to provide uh, an overview of slavery uh, and slave systems in general 
often means to put an excessive uh, attention on uh, victimization. This was not the case in the museum that was destroyed. Now, because the history of many large public and private museums in Europe and the Americas is rooted in violence, most of their permanent and temporary exhibitions continue to this day, uh, ignoring the involvement of their nations in the trade uh, of enslaved Africans. In European museums, we can say that these silences were not dissociated from their failure uh, in addressing the atrocities committed during the colonial rule in Africa. And having neglected any significant, um, I would say, engagement with uh, Black uh, communities in their respective cities and countries, these institutions often also avoid to address uh, how slavery generated wealth for European nations and how dominant slavery was in the development of colonies and future independent nations of uh, the, the Western Hemisphere. Now, in this kind of context of silence, erasure, institutions then in Britain, like the Merseyside Maritime Museum in Liverpool, uh, the Museu Náutico uh, da Bahia in Salvador in Brazil, they have briefly depicted the history of the Atlantic slave trade, but always as part of this general history of the British and Port uh, Portuguese maritime expansion. Then we have several other museums in countries like the United States, France, Portugal, and Spain. Uh, then in these places, uh, they tended uh, to show the history of slavery, uh, sometimes uh, representing it as um, a benevolent institution, uh, very often uh, trying to emphasize the role of the savior, white abolitionists who emancipate, uh, emancipated submissive uh, black subjects. Now, we also had uh, other institutions with modest uh, resources uh, and not much support from professional historians. And these are museums ran by local communities, associations, and cities. And here, for example, in the United States, we have uh, in Maryland, the Sandy Springs Slave Museum. Uh, we also have in Charleston, South Carolina, the Old Slave Mart Museum. Uh, we have the Slave Relics Museum in South Carolina as well. Uh, we have the Slaves Museum in Minas Gerais uh, in Brazil. And we also have Museu do Escravo Slaves Museum in uh, Brazil as well. Now, these were among the few institutions that, uh, and very small and with very modest means that explored this history of slavery and the Atlantic slave trade, but very often emphasizing victimization. Most of the objects that these places they display are uh, instruments of torture. Now, at the end, uh, in the last decade then of the, the 20th century, this context started changing and gradually the history of slavery made its way into museums in Europe and the Americas. Uh, in the 1990s, for example, and this is a, a turning point to the end of the Cold War accelerated a process that allowed then minority groups to raise their voices uh, and to create connections internationally. Uh, this dynamic 
of globalization promoted much more dialogue among black citizens around the world uh, through communities, local associations, larger organizations, then black social actors, they denounced the persistence of racism and racial inequalities. And in many instances, for example, conferences uh, and international forums led by the United Nations, these social actors, they pushed European, American, and uh, also West African nations to discuss their past involvement in the slavery and the Atlantic slave trade. Now, um, we can also say that West African countries uh, that during the same period, the 1990s, uh, were the countries that were seeking to promote economic development through tourism activities, they also encouraged the memorialization of the slavery and the Atlantic slave trade, especially through the promotion of heritage sites and also the creation of monuments uh, and memorials. And we had during this period, and especially during the, the uh, commemorative dates, uh, in Europe and the Americas, a number of initiatives that emerged. In 1988, Brazil celebrated the centennial of the end of the slavery. In 1992, several European and American countries commemorated um, the, then the um, then the, the anniversary uh, then of the uh, arrival of uh, Columbus uh, in the, the Americas. And in 1994, as part of the development uh, then um, of this context in which uh, the, this uh, past atrocities were being discussed, UNESCO launched the Slave Root Project in Wida, in Republic of Benin, and this was Wida uh, was the second largest uh, slave port in West Africa during the era of the Atlantic slave trade. And a few years later, in 1998, France uh, also observed the sesquicentennial of its abolition of slavery. Now, uh, as we entered the 21st century in May 2001, France became the first European country to enact legislation declaring slavery and the slave trade crimes against humanity. Brazil also passed federal legislation later uh, making mandatory the teaching of the history of Africa and um, uh, Africa and Africans, as well as the history of Afro-Brazilian culture in school curricula. And this happened in 2003. Now, at this turn of the 21st century, Britain, as you know, started um, uh, preparing the commemoration of the bicentennial of the Slave Trade Act uh, um, 1807 that ended the slave trade uh, in the British Empire. Now, in 2007, then, as you know, many of these, uh, uh, many museums in Britain marked this anniversary um, and uh, with uh, temporary exhibitions um, and permanent exhibitions as well, uh, the International Slavery Museum was created in 2007. Now, in Brazil, during this period, as I already mentioned, the anniversary of 1988 and also the passing of the legislation to teach Afro-Brazilian history in schools, the situation was changing in Brazil. 
um, then this started changing, uh, changing, especially during the administration of President uh, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, when the law of 2003 passed. And it was time then for the, the National Museum in Rio de Janeiro uh, to come um, uh, to, to, to value, to value and to, to, to highlight its collections um, telling the history of Africa and the slavery and the Atlantic slave trade. In 2007, uh, the Ministry of Education at the time led by Fernando Haddad, uh, who ran for president in the last elections in Brazil, he, during uh, this, his, um, term in the Ministry of Education, we had this rich catalog uh, of the museum that was published. And Brazil by this time, then by 2010, was already preparing for the FIFA World Cup uh, to be held in 2014. And Rio de Janeiro was preparing to, uh, to, to hold then the, um, uh, the Summer Olympic Games in 2016. As renovation works uh, were in progress then in the old port area of Rio de Janeiro, uh, as part of a project that was called Porto Maravilha, wonderful, uh, wonder, wonder port, uh, the wharf of the Valongo uh, area, the Valongo wharf, uh, where thousands of enslaved Africans uh, disembarked during the end uh, of the 18th century until 1831, the wharf was rediscovered. And this was a major finding. Archaeologists uh, working in this area uh, collected hundreds of artifacts, uh, such as amulets, uh, pipes, and bones linked to the African populations that were disembarked in this area. Uh, and these items were to be examined indeed. In the, national, in the laboratories of the National Museum. In that same year, indeed, the National Museum, this was 2011, started developing a new exhibition uh, titled Kumbu Kumbu, Africa Memory and Heritage, curated by historian Marisa de Carvalho Soares. And this exhibition opened uh, in May 2014. Uh, the new room featured at the time uh, about 154 African and Afro-Brazilian objects uh, that were contextualized with explanatory panels. You can see from the, 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 the displays here the difference between these and the ones with the, the, the first photograph that I took of that same throne. Uh, then uh, there was also an, uh, a book uh, that uh, sort of uh, catalog uh, then uh, ex uh, explaining and proposing a lot of activities for school children. Um, and this catalog in Portuguese is online and there will be soon a translation in English. Uh, by then, then despite uh, the, these transformations that the museum was uh, going through, uh, the Museum of Oz is still struggling to attract uh, visitors. To have an idea, uh, about 289,000 Brazilians visit a Francis Louvre Museum uh, in Paris in 2017, uh, and only 192,000 people 
visited uh, the National Museum in that same year. Indeed, most of the visitors of the National Museum were low-income individuals, and many of them were Black citizens, especially those um, uh, disadvantaged uh, students from the public school system who could visit the institution very often for free. Then the National Museum meant different things to different people. Uh, to Brazilian and international academics was a shrine in many ways, housing then collections uh, they have been investigating for years. And also a place housing several graduate programs of the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro. Uh, but the building held a special meaning for Brazil's black population. At the time of the fire, um, Giovanna Xavier, who is uh, an Afro-Brazilian historian, a public intellectual, and also a professor of the, the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro, she told uh, the New York Times that she could still remember visiting the National Museum for the first time when she was just five years old. And I quote her, for many people in my family, it was the first and only museum they ever visited, along with the museum's collection, which is uh, immeasurable. There is the important loss uh, of building historical awareness in children, unquote. Xavier certainly had in mind here uh, the impact of the museum's destruction on Black children. The National Museum was one of the few Brazilian museums to give prominent space uh, to African culture, culture and heritage. And in a racist environment marked by deep uh, racial inequalities where black bodies uh, are persistently uh, devalued, uh, low-income black children who visit the Kumbu Kumbu um, exhibition, they were provided with tangible reminders of the long history of the African continent and uh, the, the rich heritage of their ancestors. Then by engaging uh, the National Museum's collections of uh, world heritage artifacts, especially then the Luso-Brazilian, African, and indigenous objects, visitors from, from all kinds, uh, from all walks uh, of life, uh, they could develop this deeper sense of belonging to this complex society that is uh, Brazil uh, in a place that no other institution could offer them uh, that perspective. Now, these structural problems that were faced by the museum uh, accumulated over several years. At the time of the fire, the main building had a number of problems, including a termite infestation. There were leaking gutters, water infiltration. There was no sparking system, uh, no smoke detect. The, the smoke detectors existed, but were not working properly when the fire is sparking. And in the addition to that, of course, there is all the material, the, the construction material that was used uh, in that building that facilitated the propagation of the fire. Now, because the museum was um, managed by the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro, uh, then it was not financially uh, autonomous. And it had uh, been badly affected uh, since 2014 uh, by federal budget cuts 
that Hadley that were decreasing and uh, the, the the money that was then given to the to the university. Now this tragic portrait, uh, as I come to the conclusion, was not unique to the National Museum. All over Brazil, public archives, libraries, uh, and museums housing then uh, precious world uh, history collections depend on public funding and are also at risk uh, and in need of financial support uh, to continue to undertake these renovations. In some cases, Brazilian historians, Brazilian scholars, they personally obtain uh, financial support uh, to, to safeguard these items and documents. Uh, but these individual initiatives, of course, they are not efficient, sufficient uh, solution for preserving museum collections and archival documents. More than two years then after the disaster, uh, many items were um, salvaged, uh, but the Africana collection that I showed here and the objects associated uh, with um, slavery and the Atlantic slave trade were lost. Uh, the museum's future then remains uncertain. In October 2018, uh, the far-right candidate uh, Jair Bolsonaro won the Brazilian presidential election. And after he took office in 2019, he eliminated the Ministry of Culture and transformed it into a secretariat attached to the Ministry of Citizenship. And uh, the, then the current government is not only committed uh, to continue neglecting uh, national heritage, but is also committed to destroy what was left of it. Now, despite these blows, the National Museum's administration, the, the staff as well, gave priority then for, uh, to the reconstruction uh, efforts to ensure the continuation of the academic programs. Um, and even though international governments and institutions are supporting the reconstruction of the building and the creation of new collections, as scholars, we know that we must accept the reality that the National Museum is gone and can never be replaced. Now, the death of the museum is in many ways also a metaphor of Brazilian society today in which its cultural institutions are under threat and where its populations of African descent are not only murdered by the police violence promoted by the Brazilian state, but are also now disproportionately killed by COVID-19. Still, as this lecture series has showed, this was not the first institution turned into ashes and probably is not going to be the last. We may hope that other initiatives will also emerge from this landscape of death and destruction. Thank you. Thank you very much. Absolutely wonderful lecture. Um, one that really helps us reflect just as the series has done. So it fits right into what we've been seeking to achieve. So thank you very much for that. Reflecting on the, the complicated history of collecting uh, and uh, there's many things that we can pick up there in terms of you know that, that discussion that you've raised about the origins of museums in 
loot, but also that other angle that you bring out about their potential for social change and then the specifics of Brazil. I just think your metaphor of the museum uh, representing uh, uh, the death of the museum representing Brazilian society. That's something that I think resonates much more uh, closely to home and the culture wars that you're describing are not unfamiliar from much more uh, proximate neighbours uh, and even closer to home. So uh, do remember, please, the lecture is being uh, recorded for Facebook. You can start um, logging questions in the Q&A and I'll uh, come to them shortly. But first, let me go to our respondent this evening, Laura Joy, who I introduced briefly at the start of the lecture. Laura is the Port Heritage Director at Dublin Port, but also former chair of the Irish Blue Shield and board of, uh, member of the board of the Irish Museum Association and a former speaker in this series in uh, January 2020. Over to you, Laura. Peter, thank you very much for the, for the introduction and hello, everyone. Um, it's a privilege tonight to be asked to respond uh, to tonight's lecture. Uh, I would like to thank uh, Professor Araujo for her fascinating and, and thoughtful lecture on the events of the 2nd of September uh, 2018 in, in Rio uh, and the impact of the loss of 22% of the collections. Um, and in particular, as we learned, uh, the 40,000 artifacts connected with Brazil's indigenous populations and uh, a key part of this lecture, the 700 items from its, its African collections. Uh, as the lecture uh, has shown, um, you know, museums are very much brought out, grow up in the 18th century from the cabinet of curiosities, the, the kind of uh, very much the gentlemen who were returning from their, their grand tours. And then in, in the 19th century, um, as we see in Brazil, they become temples of knowledge uh, for the elite and reflection of their society and how it perceived itself and how it wanted to be to represent it. Uh, and as Professor Arujo has, has described in her writings, um, in Brazil, this is very much representing the delusions of grandeur in the case of the Brazilian uh, slavocratic empire. Uh, in Ireland, museums in the 19th century grew from those private collections of gentlemen, and in the case of the National Museum of Ireland, from the collections of the Royal Dublin Society and the Royal Irish Academy, uh, opening in 1891, uh, a lot later than in Brazil, um, in the, as the Dublin Museum of Science and Art. The new Dublin Museum worked closely with the museums of London, Cardiff and Edinburgh, uh, and the new exhibitions highlighted the expanding British Empire. It was very much a, a British institution and in particular, the decorative arts of uh, Japan, China, and the ethnographic collections, very similar to the ones that we've heard about tonight. Naturally, the emergence of the Irish Free State in 1922 and independence had a dramatic impact on this Victorian institution. And the focus and interest uh, of the now National Museum was on archaeology and uh, Irish history. When we look at museums around the world and the, and the kind of lectures that we've heard over the last three years in relation to what happens when uh, museums and archives and libraries are destroyed. The museum sector in Ireland is actually quite small. Um, it consists of about 230 museums. And although we know the big ones like the National Museum uh, and others, um, the majority, about 60% of them are, are private and volunteer run. Uh, so the museum sector in, in Ireland is very, very, very small. Uh, and most museums, well over 70% of them, are only responsible for 5,000 objects. So nothing comparable to the, the wonderful National Museum of Brazil and what we've heard about uh, tonight. And uh, the collections in Ireland are very much focused on history and archaeology and less slow than the ethnographic uh, collections. But it was interesting in, in kind of preparing some notes on this talk that uh, you know, the concerns that were raised towards the end of the lecture there about what the problems that the museum is facing in relation to its stores and, 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 and its facilities the impact of termites. Uh, in Irish uh, museums and surveys by the Irish Museum Association, 53% of museums identified problems with their stores. 
uh, and in 35% of museums in Ireland, there's actually a lack of space. So these are concerns that impact on, on all museums uh, around, uh, around the world. Uh, and it's, it's important that we, we take them seriously uh, and we do build and make sure that the facilities that we have uh, can survive uh, destruction and uh, in the cases we saw in Brazil, fires uh, and what can happen to them. As we learned during last year's uh, lecture, uh, very much uh, you know, the preparatory professionals have come together to set up the Blue Shield International uh, uh, as a kind of volunteer body similar to the Irish, uh, to the International Red Cross. Um, and to protect our monuments, to protect our, our institutions and their collections. Blue Shield itself is named after, uh, used the symbol of the Hague Convention. And it's really uh, true of the violence that we saw in the 1990s that this kind of urge to set up uh, an organization to respond to crises, to disasters that affect cultural heritage. Um, and in particular, it's helped to facilitate international responses in, in the recent, uh, uh, recent world. Um, and Blue Shield, as we learned last year, is very much involved in preparing for disasters uh, and responding to them when they do happen. So um, I would encourage everyone to, to, to keep an eye out for uh, the work that the Irish Committee is doing. It's now chaired by uh, Zoe Reid, Head of Conservation in the National Archives, and you'll find them on Facebook and on uh, Twitter. And they've just completed a five-year strategic plan and are very, very keen to hear from everyone. In the series over the last three years, they've shown very much the impact of uh, disasters, of cultural trauma. And tonight's lecture, we've learned how slavery has been exhibited in museums around the world today, but in particular in Brazil, uh, and the wonderful work that the National Museum of Brazil was doing uh, in that lovely exhibition, the photographs that we saw of ex exhibiting their African collections before the fire. And as we learned tonight, uh, what happens to priceless collections uh, when they are destroyed and lost, and they're lost to everyone around the world, but in particular, they've been lost to the, the black students, as uh, our lecturer has explained in Brazil. So once again, I would like to congratulate you on a, on a wonderful uh, lecture um, and also to congratulate Peter and uh, the team behind out of Ash's lecture series and the Young 2022 project for all your wonderful work. Uh, and it's been a fascinating uh, three years of lectures and uh, congratulations. Thank you, Clark. That's very uh, generous of you and wonderful that you could contribute again. Well, we have questions um, building up now in the Q&A, um, including from members of the audience who uh, have visited the museum uh, in the past and are commenting on how uh, sad the events of 2018 are. Um, I wonder uh, if we could start with a question from the director of the Long Room Hub. Uh, the Trinity Long Room Hub is directed by uh, Professor Eve Patton. Uh, from the School of English. And Eve, I think you have a question for uh, our main speaker. I do. Can you hear me all right? Can indeed. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I want to thank Professor Arujo for a really fascinating talk. Uh, and my question is, is provoked by uh, her very interesting comments on the, the victim narrative, which can emerge in relation to the collections that she's talking about. And I thought it was such a well-judged uh, insight. Um, but my mind was taken to the International Slavery Museum in Liverpool, which I visited some time ago. Um, and one of the things that struck me about the collection there is the, uh, the arrangement that sets the slavery-related history and artifacts directly beside the history of black civil rights. Uh, and I wonder if uh, she might share my concern that 
this risks simplifying two historical episodes uh, and in fact homogenizing uh, a black experience that, that really deserves a lot more political complexity. So my, my question is about whether in the efforts to uh, display uh, the experience of slavery and its attendant histories, there is a risk of simplification, particularly in relation to the, the, the history of civil rights. Thank you for uh, for your question. It's uh, it's an important question, uh, and it's a museum, the International Slavery Museum, that um, that I studied and uh, visit several times. I would say that um, the main problem that happens there, uh, the museum starts in Africa. Then the the the, the exhibition. There are three galleries. The the first gallery uh, focuses on Africa. The second on the Atlantic slave trade, and the last one that is on the legacies. Um, it is important to connect. Uh, the history of slavery and the legacies, because at the end of the day, that museum emerged from uh, the men's, uh, from black citizens to recognize this history. And this history is important, not only because of the past, but because of the present of uh, racism and uh, white supremacy, either in a country like uh, Britain or uh, in France or in Brazil and so on then uh, the problem with the museum is that it attempts uh, to, to cover a lot. Uh, there was this intention of cover the legacies while also covering slavery, not only uh, in the UK, but uh, then in the, in the, the former uh, British colonies. And then there is this attempt to cover too much. And then uh, of course that for the visitor, we have this impression of um, immediate continuity between uh, slavery and the, the civil rights movement, which is, of course, uh, a simplified uh, representation. But with the resources and the space that that museum has, um, we would need that uh, three times that is space at least to be able to tell uh, this history. Of course, that is the history of the slavery and the Atlantic slave trade more than 300 um, years. And then what happened after, uh, which are the legacies. Then uh, on the one hand, there is this risk of simplification. And I would say that the discourse on victimization is not uh, is, is much more related to the excessive emphasis on images of victimization, images uh, also artifacts uh, the, uh, of torture. This is problematic. But on the other hand, there are museums that are not focusing on the legacies. If you take the example of the Nantes History Museum in the, the, the French port of Nantes. Uh, it's a, a spectacular museum, the, the, the Museum of History of Nantes, but the, their exhibition does not address at all the issue of legacies. And uh, to present day social actors, it, it is also important. It, there is a need to connect this history of the past uh, with what was left uh, from this past. Then it's a trick. Uh, it, it's a tricky issue, and I think that most museums uh, to this day they are uh, they are dealing with this uh, with this problem. Few of them are able to uh, to solve this issue. Perhaps the museum here in the Washington D.C. 
the National Museum of African American History and Culture is one of these museums to solve this problem, but the, the space they have and the financial resources uh, they have available uh, is not at hand uh, to, to any other institution. Thank you. Thank you very much for that answer. Could I uh, ask, uh, I was struck by the, uh, as Laura was, by the reimagining of that exhibit uh, in the years just immediately prior to the fire. Um, was that already attracting government level hostility? Was it part of the cultural war even before the fire? Uh, and then we have the, the new government comes in and defunds the, or just removes the Department of Culture altogether. I mean, can you comment on that? It seems like there's that, that tension in the cultural uh, landscape is very interesting. Let me see if, if I understood. I think that at that point when the, the exhibition was uh, open, because we need to think in terms of uh, those who visited the museum, most were, they, they didn't have that huge number of visitors. Uh, many school children, then uh, the museum, the, the, the exhibition was having a, a good impact. And uh, I do not know of any reactions that were negative reactions regarding, uh, re regarding that exhibition. What you can call uh, the so-called cultural wars uh, in the case of Brazil, then first of all, is the attack uh, the physical attack against the populations of African descent by, by the police, uh, especially also, I think that is the, the, the Afro-Brazilian religious temples that are attacked by uh, individuals then who are uh, members of these um, evangelical churches that um, in Brazil are now very associated with uh, the far right. But otherwise, uh, at that point, it was not uh, necessarily very, very visible. Uh, for example, we have other museums uh, in Brazil that uh, deal with uh, uh, Afro-Brazilian heritage. And uh, then perhaps many people who are not connected to this heritage, they simply do not visit. But the, the, the target, I would say, of this, uh, this new context uh, of uh, what we uh, call uh, cultural wars are uh, the, the, the public spaces, especially associated with religion. But it's still the exhibition had um, then uh, objects um, that are associated with uh, African Brazilian religions. But perhaps in the context of a museum, they were not, um, they were perceived as, as distant and uh, were not yet, as far as I know, the target of these uh, hostilities. Mm -hmm. There are some more questions. Thank you very much for that. There are some more questions coming in about aspects of the destruction. So a simple question as to the source of the fire, but also a question from Angus uh, Mitchell asking about uh, the cataloging uh, in, in the sense of what was lost. I mean, you described this as an incredibly large collection of well, 20 million objects. So to, to comprehend what was lost must itself be an enormous challenge. Is, there, is, there, is that something that's underway as part of the recovery process? Uh, and related to that, Angus asked, was the National Library uh, also destroyed as well as the artifacts in the museum? Yeah, the source of the fire, uh, it was uh, then the, the, the AC system that is somewhere uh, then the, 
there was an electrical problem and this was the, the source uh, as far as I know. And um, regarding the, the, the catalog, yes, uh, then, the, then the museum professionals, they have been uh, doing this, this work. Uh, and the library was also uh, partially uh, destroyed. I don't know exactly details about what was uh, what was uh, recovered, but uh, there are these efforts. And uh, in terms of the uh, Africana collection, it's uh, then the Africana collection is on. Uh, there is an initiative by Google uh, that they put. Um, I, I just kidding. I, I know that is if you put a, a national museum in Google, they have this this collection uh, with uh, pictures of uh, high resolution, and this was done uh, with that part of the collection. There were objects that were uh, salvaged, uh, and uh, there are also uh, inventories that uh, were made. Then over time, it's just that. Uh, I do not think that this this entire work is um, is uh, finished uh, at this uh, at this point. But pretty much uh, then, uh, regarding the different collections, we know what was uh, what was lost and what uh, and um, what was uh, what survived. Let's say that way. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I think what we I've learned through the uh, project that I'm involved in is the value of that uh, cataloging. I mean, that in terms of any, any future attempts at recovery, all these attempts to, uh, to list and into inventory become incredibly valuable for the longer term preservation uh, attempts. Uh, uh, the digital component of that, though, strikes me as really interesting. If that's with Google, uh, how will that be preserved in the longer term? You may not know the answer to that, but that that's, um, strikes me as um, having its own inbuilt ephemeral uh, dangers that one would want to preserve against to make sure that digital artifacts also remain within public domain and control. Um, in terms of other questions, um, there's a, a question regarding the insurance, uh, whether there was any in, uh, insurance and what that might lead to I, I, I don't I don't have any idea I would not be able to give an informed opinion about uh, this uh, this kind of uh, detail regarding the in insurance but uh, the problem with insurance uh, as you know in this kind of context when there is neglect uh, it's it's complicated uh, and there were many elements that were not there especially for example sparkling system and so on then this may be a problem. But the museum had, uh, th th there was support coming uh, from everywhere in order to, to recover and to reconstruct. Apparently the museum is planning to op uh, partially reopen in 2022, uh, but it still is a museum that as an institution is a public institution depends on public funding and uh, unique objects that were lost, they, they, they are lost then uh, of course that uh, as a historian working on particular uh, collections uh, my interest is about uh, what was lost and this cannot be uh, cannot be recovered that whatever is the the 
the the amount of money that an insurance uh, could give to what uh, uh, for the destruction it's not going to be bring back objects uh, like the ones that were unique gifts given to to a portuguese monarch yeah well i think i think that's a certainly a, a lesson uh that we've had to learn in, in an irish context no matter how much work we seek to do in terms of recovery the painful lesson is that enormous amount is lost forever uh, um, uh, i thought i saw a question from zoe reed who um lord joy uh, referred to zoe as a colleague of ours through both the blue shield in the case of lar and through beyond 2022 in my case uh, as a um uh, a, Conservator in the National Archives Ireland. Zoe asked how many staff were employed in the museum in 2018 and have those staff uh, managed to remain working there? Do you have any sense of that in terms of the scale of human resources? And, that were... um, I don't know the exact number, hundreds uh, of uh, people. Some of these uh, people who are doing work uh, were associated with the university as well. Then uh, it's hard to say, but there is a staff is still working. Uh, then the people that uh, you see in the, the pictures uh, recovering indeed the, many of these staff members were those uh, doing manually putting their lives in risk uh, with the context that was there just after the, the fire even in the night of the fire they were those who were there then it's at the order of hundreds but uh, it's hard to, to, to differentiate those who are uh, uh, connected uh, uh, to the university, for example, yes. and those uh, who are not. And there were people who were also uh, working independently. For example, I mentioned curator Marisa de Carvalho Suarez, who created the exhibition, the, the Kumbu Kumbu exhibition. She uh, was an invited curator. She was not part of the, the staff of uh, the museum. And this is why it's difficult. But of course, I didn't study in detail uh, elements regarding the all these, uh, these details. This is not the, the dimension that I cover uh, in my work. Yes, yeah, um, I think what strikes me is the, uh, as well as the loss in terms of the cultural heritage, sometimes after a, a tragedy of this kind, what also gets lost is the, the social capital, the expertise that's um, um, been built up over generations in an institution. And that can uh, can be you know, as important to try and preserve if anything is to uh, be brought back. <clears throat> well, I think we have to draw questions to a close uh, at this point. Well, it's been an absolutely fascinating lecture. I'm just very sorry that we didn't manage to bring you to Dublin in person on this occasion. But as, as I've said, uh, this general topic that you're bringing to our attention here about the interpretation uh, uh, of uh, the uh, transatlantic slave trade and institutions involvement in it, that's something that's of live interest in, in our Trinity context at the moment. And we look forward to finding an opportunity to bring you to Dublin. I also want to thank Lord Joy uh, for uh, remaining so closely involved in the series and for offering a response this evening. To, to the uh, members of the audience, just to remind you that in just over two months, we will have uh, our next and sadly our final lecture in the Out of the Ashes series. It will take place on the 25th of May, which will be the centenary of the Customs House fire in Dublin uh, on the 25th of May, 2021. And there will be a research showcase involving um, local government archives and record managers association and the beyond 2022 project that will happen during the day but in the evening as the last out of the ashes 
lecture, the curator of the Bodleian Libraries in Oxford, Richard Ovenden, will be speaking uh, with our own uh, Trinity librarian, Helen Shenton. Uh, Richard Ovenden is the author of Burning the Books. I have his book here, plug for his book, uh, Burning the Books, subtitled A History of Knowledge Under Attack, which surveys um, um, you know, many of the themes that this series has been exploring across the last three years. So thank you to you all for attending this evening. Thank you to colleagues in the Long Room Hub. Uh, for organising everything so expertly. Thank you to Lar, but most of all, uh, renewed thanks to Professor Alan C. Arujo for a wonderful lecture, and uh, we look forward to seeing you in Dublin sometime in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.